Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is powered by Christianity Today. JR, how are you, buddy? Good morning. Good to see you, Doug. Happy April to you. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. Hard to believe that we're in April, post-Easter here. Yes. uh, Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we've done in the past that we're starting to do more of is this segment before we jump into our interview uh, today is questions and quotes, which is something you came up with, which I think is great. And we love questions. We love quotes. So let's give our listeners, what are some questions or a question or two that you're thinking through? And then we'll go to quotes after that. Uh, What's a question that's rolling around in your head, Doug? Yeah. So this question is going to sound real, uh, real weird maybe, but I think it's a really important one that I'm learning is what I am feeling blank and in my body. So the idea of like, where am I feeling whatever joy, sadness, you know, whatever emotion and how am I experiencing that in my body? So what am I, you know, I am feeling blank and I'm feeling it blank in my body. Like where in my body am I feeling that? Yeah. So give me an example, Doug, of something like in maybe in the last couple yeah. of days or where have you felt that? Fantastic. So for me, just the other day, I was thinking, I, I just felt really joyful. I was hanging out with my kids and had just a really good opportunity to be with them, to share a meal together. And I was sitting down thinking, I feel joyful. And I, I felt it like almost like rise up, like within my chest. Like I just felt like a, there was a deep sense of like a deep breath in my chest. I just felt something where I'm like, yeah, I'm experiencing joy. It's a physical thing. It's not just oh. an emotional thing. So trying to connect the head with the body, you know, what yeah, I'm thinking with cool. what I'm, what I'm feeling with what I'm actually experiencing physically. Wow. So you've experienced joy in your, in your chest. In my chest. Yeah. 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 Very like cool. Deep breath. Yes. Right. So it reminds me a little bit of like, uh, when we talk with Steve Cuss and he talked about like, you know, is it a racing mind or a spinning head or, a like, a not in your gut, yep. right? Like he's really trying to help us embody that. That's really good, Doug. Yeah. yeah. Huh. How about you? What, what like questions that. been rolling around for you? Yeah, I think very simply a question that I've been thinking about lately is, is this a monologue, a dialogue, or a debate? Ooh. Like in most conversations, it's one of those three, right? I mean, so we think about that where is this me here just to talk or for them to talk and me listen? Is this really a dialogue or are we engaged in a debate, whether we're watching the news, which I hardly ever do, or talking with a friend or whatever. Anyway, just been an interesting question that we may not ask out loud, but it may be something that we ask sort of in our heads. Is this a monologue? Is this a dialogue or is this a debate? I love that. I love that. I feel like that really gets you into a great headspace when you're actually in that moment. So to get frustrated, (laughs) right? (laughs) Sure. Right. I mean, especially when things are heated, could be a conversation with a family member, Hmm. you know, like, is this a monologue? Is this a dialogue or are we involved in a debate? Let's just name it like right up front. So I found that to be helpful. So, uh, and as far as a quote, I'm going to pull off some Stanley Hauerwas here. For our leader, our listeners who may not know who Stanley Hauerwas is, he is a well-respected and uh, revered theologian from Texas. And uh, he's got a real nasally voice when he talks and he's got a Texas accent. And uh, so that was my real, I was holding my nose. That was pretty good. But if you've heard Stanley talk, like that's, that's how he talks, but he said this and I won't do it in the accent, but uh, he said, Protestant Christians set out to make American Christianity and instead made Christianity American. Ooh. So actually, yeah, let me say it again. Protestant Christians set out to make America Christian and ended by making Christianity American. Oh, 
Ooh, that's a so, heavy thought to sit with. Anyway, yeah, that's, not to get too political, but no, but what a challenge to be helpful. That's awesome. That's so good. So, all right, how about, how about you, Doug? Here's mine. So, this is from uh, Harold Sankbile, and um, I, I just I keep coming back to this. He says, "Always remember, you're nothing more than an errand boy for Jesus." That's hard to keep straight. We keep thinking you and I. That if anything good is going to happen in God's kingdom, it will depend on our persistence, drive, and clever ingenuity. Huh. And uh, but I just love that that picture of just saying, "Yeah, like Lord, where what are you calling me to do today, and how do I do that faithfully?" And so, mm. yeah, I've just been enjoying and thinking through that quite a bit in the just in most places of life, whether it's parenting, whether it's pastoring, whatever it is, but just saying like, yeah, I'm an errand boy. Like how, how do I come to that place of just sitting with that and not feeling the pressure, right? Especially post Easter. We're all in that post Easter blues where we're like, could it on this better? Could it in that better? Man, the pressure's off. The tomb's empty. Jesus asked us to do things. We just say yes. So yeah. So that's where I'm at, man. That's the quote that's been rattling in my brain. Tara Beth Leach is a pastor at Christ Church of Oak Brook, Illinois, in the western suburbs of Chicago. She previously served as senior pastor of First Church of the Nazarene of Pasadena, also known as Paznaz, in Southern California. She's a graduate of Olivet Nazarene University and Northern Theological Seminary. She's also a writer for Missio Alliance and publications such as Christianity Today, Christian Week, and Jesus Creed. She's the author of Emboldened and the newly released book, Radiant Church, Restoring the Credibility of Our Witness. Enjoy this conversation with our friend, Tara Beth Leach. Well, good to see you again, Tara Beth. It's good to have you back on the podcast. It's so great being here. We had so much fun last time, and I was so just excited to see that. You welcome me back. So thanks for the invite. Yeah, there aren't many guests that we've had on more than once. You're on the short hey. list, and uh, but we did have a great conversation. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things that Doug and I really appreciated, which is in line with our podcast posture and tone, is we want to be raw but also hopeful. Yeah. And you were both. I mean, you were really sharing what, what you do and where you go on a Monday when things are rough. And uh, I know the last time that we spoke with you, you were pastoring in Pasadena at a large church, and your environs have changed. So. Where are you now, both geographically and vocationally, and what are you up to these days? Yeah, it has been a wild ride since we last connected. I was at Paznaz for four and a half years, and I never thought that I would go. Uh, we were there for the long haul. And I, you know, I suppose that's how we should all be when we go into any ministry context, right? You know, go into it with commitment and open-handed, and sometimes the Spirit surprises you. Uh, but when the pandemic hit... Um, my dad was also diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer mm. and then my mom, Alzheimer's simultaneously. Wow. And, uh, you know, I was leading a turnaround church through a pandemic, through um, racial tensions and conversations and really hard conversations in a very polarized context and flying from Pasadena to Chicago once to twice a month to care for my parents and help. And August came along and I just said to the Lord, like something has got to give. It felt like a bungee cord was wrapped around my waist and pulling at both directions and I couldn't breathe. Mm. And, you know, for so long, 
pastoring a historic church as the first woman was often about having the courage, the pastor having the courage to stay. And it was, you know, in a moment, you know, the Lord just cut the bungee cord and I went catapulting back to Chicago, not knowing what I was going to be doing for sure at first. And suddenly it wasn't you, you can do this. You, you can have the courage to stay, but just the spirit so distinctly said, you also have the courage to go. Mm -hmm. And so that was, it rocked my world. It rocked my world leaving Paznaz. I often say more um, than anyone that I was shocked. Mm. And also we had such a strong sense of release as we were catapulted back to the Midwest. And it was this, just this moment um, where though at first we didn't know what we were doing, um, the Lord just opened up doors for us. And so I am back on staff at Christ Church of Oak Brook. And I say back because this is where I was on staff before we went to Paznaz. Mm. We're home. We're home. We're with, with a church that we know and love and respect and are familiar with. And it is, it is a good season. It's still a difficult season caring for my folks, but I'm um, grateful we're here. Mm-hmm. So you're, you were in that role, then you go as lead pastor, and now you're not in a lead pastor role. Do you find some of those instincts of wanting to lead or jump in? You say, oh, wait, I don't have to necessarily do that. Is there a rewiring of your, of your brain and of your heart, your vocational impulses in this new role? You know, it has been such a season of healing and rest for me that I am embracing the gift of not being in charge. Um, you know... <laughs> I, there's been several Sundays where I've walked out of the church building thinking, you know, I don't, I don't have to worry about like, if the doors are going to get locked, I don't have to worry about, you know, all the operations and all the ins and the outs, you know, I don't have to worry about managing the budget. And of course, I think the, the part that I'm reading the most is not preaching every single Sunday. I miss that discipline. I miss, um, just that pastoral connection that I get week in and week out for sure. And, you know, there's been moments where, you know, I want to get involved in the vision casting and I I might say it in my own way. And then I remember I'm a part of a culture, you know, that has a particular language. And so, um, but I think right now, most of all, I'm just grateful. Hmm. Yeah, that's, well, I want to go back. I really appreciate that image. You said it feels like a bungee cord around my waist and I couldn't breathe. And um, just in terms of being back and forth, taking care of your parents and pastoring Paznaz. And um, I just, I wanted to kind of lean in like, you know, as pastors, we're really called to step in into situations and to know how to respond when people are sick and things like that. What's that been like for you responding to not just someone in your church, but to your parents? Yeah, it has felt so honestly biblical and also so upside down. Um, I think oftentimes this is one of the, the hidden dynamics that women often carry in ministry. Uh, I can't tell you how many doctors I have sat with that look at me and I'm sitting there there with my mom with Alzheimer's at her appointment or my dad was stage four cancer and, you know, they're connecting me with social workers and they'll look at me with just like such like empathy and they'll say, it always falls on the daughter. Uh, so often, and not always, that's, that is an, a broad generalization, but 
you know, sometimes if there, there is a daughter, it, it often does uh, fall on the daughter. I have, I have two brothers um, and, you know, it, it was just not even a conversation. Like I knew that I was going to come back and care for them. And when I say biblical, I know that like some of us react when we hear that word, but this idea of honoring your father and mother isn't just about young people behaving and getting in line, mm. but it's about honoring the elderly in your midst and caring for them in this most sacred season. And the wild thing is I don't consider my parents elderly. They're 65. What they're going through is tragically young. My mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's early. Um, and so, but at the same time, they're in this very sacred season. So for me as a pastor, how could I not come back and walk with them through the most sacred and darkest and painful uh, seasons of their life? I just knew that I had to be here. Mm. Wow. I, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I know that that's uh, biblical and I love how you have that understanding of biblical doesn't mean awesome. It means the paradox of both beautiful and difficult at the same time. Um, so what are some things that you've been doing or some practices that you've picked up that have just been helpful for you uh, in continuing to build into? Because you even mentioned in the midst of taking care of your parents, it's like a life restoring healing season. So what are some ways that you're experiencing that life? What are some practices that you're using to, to just notice that coming about? Yeah, the practices have in some ways shifted since we last talked, and in some are still so much the same. You know, last time we talked, we talked about the Monday pastor's cohort that mm. I met with. You know, I'm not doing that right now. In a lot of ways, because I've moved away from a season of, of senior pastoring. And so right now, so much of my focus is on my folks. And the last four and a half years, it's no secret. It was really difficult for me. It was really, really hard. It was really, really um, exhausting. And, you know, and it was wonderful. There were so many gifts of the season. There were so many joys and so many things that we could celebrate. And I can testify that nothing was lost. And also there were a lot of things that broke inside of me. Um, just the dynamics of pastoring a church as the first female in a historically difficult church. And so right now, so much of my practices have to do with my healing and resting and discerning and making sense of where I am, not in just this season, but where I am in even just the next season coming out of this, what is next for me? Um, and trying to maintain just a really open posture of even saying to the Lord, like, just because I was a senior pastor before and because I'm not now, because I'm caring for my parents, doesn't mean the next season has to mean I have to be a senior pastor. Right. And so it's very much of an open-handed journey of healing and discerning where I am right now and where the spirit is leading me. And so those practices have, um, are, are seen in, moving my body still. I don't have mountains to move my body on anymore. Um, it is very flat here <laughs> in the woods and we do have a trail system behind us. So, you know, getting outdoors every day, listening to worship music, even if I'm, you know, tromping through the snow, um, moving my body, praying, um, and listening to worship music and reflecting or, you know, listening to the Monday Morning Pastor podcast or whatever podcast it might be or sermon. And then therapy continues to be a significant means of grace for me. I have therapy on Tuesdays. 
And I have a list of things that I'm eager to talk about with my therapist on Tuesday uh, or today, even. Um, she has helped walk me through the most agonizing season of my life. Um, and, you know, in practices during COVID, too, since moving have, have been just so interesting as well. But something that has been so life giving to me is cooking dinner for my family mm. every day, uh, most days. And the reason why that's been so life-giving is because when I was a senior pastor, I didn't get to cook. My husband did that. And that was something that I missed. And so there's been something that has been so joyful about preparing the meals for my family, serving my family, taking care of my family. And while it sounds like such a mundane practice, so many women would like be like, are you kidding me? Like, you love that. But because it was something I didn't get to do, it's been a healing practice for me because it's because it is mundane and it is simple. Mm. I love the fact, Tara Beth, that there are things that have remained, but also things that have changed. Because I think some people could say, well, I'm just going to throw everything out and start over. You didn't do that. But you also didn't say, I'm going to be so rigid and do everything I did when I was in California. And I just love that uh, sort of spirit of the law, not the letter of the law in what you're saying regarding your own life-giving practices. So I just I rejoice in that. Obviously, yeah. Doug and I as males can't fully uh, appreciate the difficulty that you were in. But I do remember at Missio Alliance, what kind of a one of the speaker dinners that we had, we just happened to be sitting at the same table. And I turned to you and said, you know, how are you really doing? And you just, you said, I'm not well. And I just appreciated in that environment, you could have said, good, how are you? But uh, you just really entered in to say, it's been a hard season. And, yeah. uh, and and you're back in Chicago, like home, which is great, but it's still a hard season with your family. And uh, even in the midst of the difficulty, somehow you had time to write another book. I mean, after Emboldened, then you write Radiant Church and this new book. I highly enjoyed uh, not only reading it, reading it, but giving my full endorsement of it. And, uh, you know, most books start out with a question or even a problem that the author wants to address. So when it comes to, you know, Radiant Church, restoring the credibility of our witness, what is the problem or the, the question that you're hoping to answer when you wrote this book? Yeah, thank you, Jared. Well, and also just thank you for the endorsement. And something that was just so special and meaningful to me is you wrote to me on launch day. Mm. Uh, just mm. said, happy launch day. Mm. Thought, what a cool thing to do that someone would acknowledge that. And so it's a big you. deal. Yeah. You know, it's and it's to celebrate that with you about you as a pastor hmm. and, you know, as a shepherd and the way that you care for people and champion even the voices of women. So thank you so much for that. And so when it comes to the problem, is, you know, and when I began pastoring Paz Naz, the problems that I was seeing within the church of, in North America and even experiencing locally were not new. I wasn't the first to discover them. I was listening to others who were pointing them out. And also I was experiencing them firsthand. And what I was experiencing boots on the ground locally was concerns for the ways that Christians were behaving and posturing themselves in this world that was causing us to lose credibility, that our witness in this world that is supposed to be stunning, holy, and attractive was diminishing. And so I wrote to, you know, well, I wrote within the context of white evangelicalism. And I say that right away, like, who am I critiquing? Well, I'm critiquing white evangelicalism. Why? Because that's what I know. That's what I'm familiar with. That's 
that's that's been my experience. And so I am a young female pastor um, addressing and critiquing what I observe within evangelicalism, particularly with the credibility of our witness. And for me as a pastor, one of the things I've observed as I'm meeting with people in the neighborhood is there's a lot at stake when it comes to the credibility of our witness. I can't tell you how many people that I would connect with in California and they would find out I'm a pastor um, or even a Christian. And the conversations that followed were alarming and continue to be alarming. And my concern is that the ways that the church has been grappling with this down throughout history is pointing the finger outward. We point the finger outward and we say, well, this is the post-Christian context. This is, you know, this is the, the decay of culture. This is the decline of morality in our culture. And then we have somehow become the victims because we, somewhere in the 90s, after this book, Jesus Freak, came out, which, by the way, I own two copies. I loved it. <laughs> we romanticize this idea of persecution. Mm. And so this, this decay of morality within America, we've, we've, we've somehow, you know, painted this narrative that we're being persecuted. They're the problem. We're not. And as a pastor, I wanted to write to those who are, you know, within that narrative and are participants in the decay of our witness or the, the, the credibility of our witness, I wanted to say, we can do better. And how can we restore this witness? Like, what are the steps that we actually need to take? And then also on the same breath, I wanted to speak to those people who have been hurt, who are now unsure, who are questioning the credibility of our witness, of who um, are, you know, one foot in and one foot out of, of the church. And I wanted to say, okay, like, let's have a conversation. Uh, what does it look like to begin this process of reconstruction? Because there's been so many people that have deconstructed, 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 and there's no end. Mm -hmm. As a pastor, like I want to help those people in the process of deconstruction and who've walked away from the church of reconstruction, a health of reconstructing a healthy view of the church, not a reconstruction that I came up with, but driving to the vision of Jesus, of who Jesus mm -hmm. believes we can be. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, when I think of deconstruction, and I totally agree with you, Tara Beth, here, because when I think of deconstruction, I'm around people where after a while I can listen to it and I'm okay with it. But if we're not starting to put stuff back together, I mean, I'm a, I'm a practical and hope-filled person. And so it's like, come on, like we can pull out all the parts of the car and put them all over the front lawn. But if you aren't interested in being a part of building a new car to help us get moving in the direction we need to go, I'm not interested. That's what I loved about your book so much is it was an attempt to break it down appropriately, deconstruct, but then put it back together to say, let's have a more hope-filled uh, yes. future, which I love about it. I mean, if a book isn't about hope, I have a hard time picking it up. Um, one thing, and this is going to be a little bit of a, a, I'm going to try to make this streamlined in the preface, but I think it's really important. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a little bit. All right. And, and, and that's all it is, is devil's advocate hypothetically. But I do think some of our listeners are thinking this. So recently, Carl Vader's, he wrote a piece 
on his site, uh, and he said, "Will the question, will the congregation come back, should not be our biggest question." And he said, "There are six better questions that we should ask." He said, "Will the congregation come back to church, should not be the question that keeps us awake at night. There are so many better questions we need to ask, questions that will get us thinking more clearly and biblically about what to do next." And so he gives one. He says, "Number one, have we represented Jesus well during the lockdown?" Then he said, if the answer to this question is maybe not, that will also give us a big hint about why some people might not be coming back. Plus, those of us in the church are not the best ones to judge how well we've we've done this. We need to ask others. We need to take their answer seriously, especially if it isn't what we want to hear. We've been given a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to show who we really are over the past year or so. And if we haven't responded as well as we should, we need to fix that. Now, with that, then David French said something recently I found interesting. He said in his recent piece, quote, during the pandemic, white evangelicals have earned the reputation as the worst neighbors rather than the best, end quote. (laughs) So I certainly don't want to sound pessimistic or cynical, cynical, but I do want to be real here. So what would you say to those kinds of people that said, if anything, when you talk about restoring the credibility of our witness, we've actually lit a lit a, a match and burn the house down in the last 12 months. So tell us how the message of your book is is attempting to sort of meet the reality where we maybe have taken some steps backwards in this pandemic, not forward. So how might you respond? I know that's kind of a big intro. My goodness, first of all, those quotes that you read are spot on and that is pure fire. Uh, And I would just want to stand up and say, yes, Yes, yes. Because when this pandemic started, I was actually really excited for the church. Churches rallied around, they were in their communities. And then May came along and it was like, what is happening? And really, even for me, that's like when things began to unravel personally, uh, just pastoring through that. Um, I I very much believe that we we missed a moment and we frankly screwed it up. We have been screwing it up, right? But I think that the pandemic, the last 12 months have been the, I guess I hope it's been the climax. Like I hope it doesn't get worse than this, Uh, but I don't know. And so I want to say in response to that, yes. And so my call then to the church is to begin the courageous process of standing before a mirror in the process of corporate examination and courageously and honestly opening themselves up to the spirit and saying, okay, things aren't right. We're with you. Something's not right. Why? What have we done? I want to see the church stop pointing the finger outward and say, perhaps post-Christian is us and it's not them. Maybe we're the post-Christian ones. And why? How have we not lived in ways that represents this call as gospel-centered people? How have we harmed our neighbors? How have we uh, bowed down to the altar of success? How have we um, been obsessive with power and influence in this world and influence in ways that is very harmful? And so this process of opening ourselves up And this opening ourselves up isn't just like this, you know, mystical moment where we go and we sit in a closet and say, okay, Lord, I'm listening. What is it? But it actually begins with listening to our neighbors 
and listening to those who have walked away from the church and saying, why? And from there, then we've got to do something with that information, with this deep listening. We're either going to continue denying it and get defensive, or we can begin the process of healing. Mm. And from that, then it's got to come to some serious naming and it has to come to some serious lamenting, right? When we skip the process of lament, it is as though we are saying nothing to see here. Everything's fine. The status quo was good, not lamentable. So let's keep on going. And then from lament, you know, this, this process of confession and from a confession, then we begin the slow, long process of reconstructing, of, of reconciliation and of being agents of healing within our own systems it's not just about going out and being healing, but it is being agents of deconstructing and healing our own systems that have been incredibly harmful. And I don't believe that's going to happen overnight. I don't know that it's going to happen in my generation. I do think we see a shifting. I do think things are changing. And I do see signs of spring. Mm. I see so many hopes within the church of those that see, that are naming, that are prophesying and that are calling the church to a better way and that are living it out. And those signs of spring are here. I don't know um, what this is going to look like in a larger scale, however. Um, But I do believe deeply that we've got to take some really hard and important steps to move forward. I think, first of all, amen, preach, like keep bringing this word. Um, So I'm just thinking about the pastor who's driving or out for a walk right now. And some of them are just so beat up and discouraged and like, just feel like, man, you know, where do I even begin? You know, like Tara Beth, like I hear you, like I see that, but if I, you know, where do I start? What does it look like? And and how does it start even with me as a pastor? You know, where are the spaces where pastors need to lament or where pastors need to look in the mirror and recognize like, man, you know, I keep looking outwards, but you know, the spirit is calling me to look inward. So yeah, I think just that question of, you know, you have some people who are on fire and saying, yeah, bring it, let's hear more. But what about those pastors right now who are like, what do I even do to start that process? Like, where can I begin? That, that's a really great question, Doug, because I am con- so deeply concerned for pastors right now and their mental health and their well-being, because calling this stuff out is costly. It's costly on their soul. It's costly on their families. It's costly on their jobs. Pastors are losing jobs. So, so in one sense, we have like a group of pastors who are saying, nothing to see here, everything's fine. And then we also have a group of pastors who's whose eyes are open to all of this and they see it and they are taking a beating. Um, I know this firsthand. I lived it and it was hard. I had to step back before I stepped away from ministry altogether um, for a season of healing. And so I would say then to those pastors, we aren't going to do this alone, Hmm. that we need each other. 
And so I would say to those pastors, get in practices that are going to sustain you for the long haul first. Um, because, you know, there's so many, I see this in so many young pastors, you know, we get out there and we start, you know, they start prophesying on Twitter and they start like naming things and they're just like, oh, like awake. And all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, like this is exhausting all this back and forth and it's not going anywhere. And then eventually what do they do? They give up and they themselves away. And so I want to say to those pastors, like first, like get locked into sustaining practices, find a cohort of other pastors that you can lament with where you have space to lament where you have space to confess, where you have space to ask questions about maybe your own, like if you are a white pastor, where you have like like spaces to sit with other white pastors and figure out your own fragility and how your privileges, you know, might need to be in check or um, make sense of this and work this out. Um, we need those those spaces to work through this. And then um, I think, you know, just through the process of discernment. I think if, you know, if we can lock arms and do this together, I think it's a slow process of, of leading our congregations forward. Mm -hmm. Well, as you and I know, writing a book is good. We also need to make sure we're practicing what we're preaching or practicing what we're writing. So I'm very curious and I'm sure you are, but I'm curious, what are the practical or intentional, some of the specific steps that you're taking to attempt to restore the credibility of the witness of the church in your own zip code? Yeah, thanks so much. Well, right now we are in lockdown and I am, you know, caring for my folks. And so currently so much of my season is um, driving back and forth and caring for my parents mm. and um, living here for the for four months, just about. Um, we haven't gotten involved too much in our zip code just mm. yet. Mm -hmm. And so um it's hard in this season with COVID and then, yeah, even more so with your parents. But yeah, yeah so it, maybe let me ask a, a different question because you do have so many factors and so many things pressing in on you out of, out of your control. How about a year from now? Yeah. What do you hope that looks like for you and your family in terms of attempting to practically do your part in your zip code of restoring the credibility of the church? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I'm so excited about, JR, is this new role that I'm stepping into. And I say stepping because it's it's becoming official um, at Christ Church is pastor of missional life. Mm. And so one of the things that they have tasked me to do is to help transition the church uh, to um, missional posture within their community. And so right now they have a very small group model. And so I'm really excited to partner with churches and equip people um, to learn how to discern what the spirit is saying in their own neighborhoods. And so the long-term goal within three years for the church to, to see 3000 people living in missional communities or micro churches. Mm, mm, and so of course, this is a massive culture shift for this church, but I'm really excited to join that process in my own neighborhood. Right. And to be living it out and to be actually asking the spirit, what do we need to learn about our neighborhood? What do we need to exegete about our community? What are the aches and the cries of our neighborhood? What are the needs of our neighborhood? And so in the coming months, and I, I confess, I know like it, this is a really hard season for me to not um, be really busy in ministry, but I think this is also a season where the spirit has asked me specifically to care for my folks. And so that's been my, my focus 
But in the coming months, I'm so excited to be asking the spirit, how can we begin this process of deep listening? And I think it has to, you know, we listen. I, I don't want to be, you know, another pastor that just rides in on a white horse in the community and knows exactly how I'm going to fix the community in which I live. Um, but instead, I want to model it by listening and understanding and building relationships with our neighbors and with our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Well, caring for your parents is restoring the credibility of the church. So mm-hmm. I want to make sure we're not bifurcating that in a very inaccurate and unhelpful way. You you absolutely are doing that. But yeah, thanks for your willingness um, to, to share on that. And I'm, we're excited for you in your new role. I mean, that's a, that's mm-hmm. a fantastic role that you're stepping into. Um, I'm curious too, for our listeners, and I really hope our listeners, everybody picks up a copy of this book, but I'm curious for you as the author, what are you most proud of in this book? Is there a chapter that was your favorite, a story that just made your heart sing when you were writing about it, or maybe even something the reader might not know when they're reading the book? Can you give us some sort of behind the curtain nugget into the life of an author? Yeah, you know, well, maybe even just telling the story of like how the book came about and the the process. I it was 2017. No, I'm sorry, 2018. I had declared after emboldened I was never going to write another book again. And I say that because I never set out to be an author, like a career author. I am a pastor who had happened to write like have written a book. I wrote the book because I love the church and I wanted to see the church live into her fullness with women and men partnering. And so I said I was never going to write another book. Well, in 2018, I sat in a coffee shop in Mammoth, California with just a bleeding heart. Uh, for what I was observing within the church in North America. We were two years into the Trump administration, and it just felt like all hell had been breaking loose locally and nationally um, within the church. And so I I started writing just words of lament and confession and aches. And, you know, the first 8,000 words I I wrote were brutal, uh, really brutal. But it was it was for me, it was therapeutic. And I wasn't sure if it should turn into a book or not. And so that manuscript actually sat five months after that. I wrote, I wrote 8,000 words. It sat and it was in therapy where my therapist said, you need to keep writing this and you need to keep going. And I thought, Hey, my therapist is giving me an assignment. So, you know, eventually working with IVP, it did turn into a book. And then, um, so crazy in May, I was going through all of the edits in the book and, um, my goodness, you know, IVP does a really awesome thing where they have ghost readers read your book. And all three of my ghost readers hated the book. Is that right? It was brutal. It was this <laughs> editing process was so hard. And I end of May, um, I was back at my folks house. We were doing an anniversary gathering for them. We, we were doing a, a renewal of vows for them. And then, um, you know, I was pastoring back at Paznez and there were all these like racial, um, you know, uh, protests happening. And I wrote to Al, my editor, and I said, I'm done. I can't write this book. I, I can't do this. I'm not equipped for this. I, um, I'm not your author. Like, let's just like fix the contract and we'll, we'll, we'll figure out what I need to fix from here. And Al said, okay, let me, let me look at what you've done here. Um, and because the second round of the book, the second edicts, the book changed quite drastically in several chapters, uh, particularly chapter eight was a chapter that changed the most. Mm. And um, he, he wrote back to me, he said, you know, I looked through this 
And he said, I'm thinking about all that's happening in our culture and world. And I think we still need this book. Mm-hmm. I think we still, I think that, I think the church really needs this book. Mm. And so he, um, he talked me off of, you know, just throwing this all away. And, um, but I was ready. I was done at that point. Mm. And so it was, it was hard to write. It was hard of, of holding the tension from like addressing things that were really hard while also knowing as a pastor, I was going to be stepping into landmines. And also this is a book that is going to make people who are on the far right and the far left mad. Mm-hmm. For those on the left, I didn't take it far enough. For those on the right, I took it too far. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, <laughs> I love that this book was essentially a failure that turned into something that needed to be heard. That's that's beautiful. Um, and thank you so much, Tara Beth, for your voice, for the way you just consistently like, I don't know, there's something about you. I know JR and I were really looking forward to this conversation because I felt like last time as we had a chance to sit with you, you really hold that that divine tension well in terms of being able to understand like what's happening within your soul, but within the world and, and just holding on to that tension. So I just want to thank you for that and for being a voice that's calling this beautiful bride into it, you know, back out, back into the world, into what it is to actually be who we're called to be. But I just wanted to leave uh, just one more opportunity. Would you have any other encouragement for pastors and church leaders in this season? Yeah, my encouragement is to just keep taking the next faithful step. Mm. Over the last year, one of the practices, um, actually last couple of years, one of the practices that I have taken on is simply praying in the morning, Lord, what's the most faithful thing to do today? Mm. And framing it in faithfulness instead of accomplishment or achievement has been a game-changing practice for me. And so I would encourage pastors every day when you feel like you just can't, um, maybe faithfulness is to take a nap and to not get out of bed that day. Hmm. Just simply ask the Lord, what is the most faithful thing today? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Tara Beth, it's always great to connect with you. Thanks for carving out some time. Uh, we're really excited about your book. And uh, it's such a gift in the midst of the year that we've had. But I don't think this is just for one year. I think this is a book that will be around for quite some time, as it should be, because it's both timely and timeless. And those are the best books around. So thanks for your willingness to be back on. And we're so grateful for you and the work that you're doing. And thanks for the way in which you're restoring the credibility uh, of the church in what you're doing and caring for your parents. I know it's mm-hmm. biblical. I know it's what you do. I know your parents have meant a lot to you, um, but that is a way in which you are pastoring so well in addition there at the church. So always good to be with you. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Doug, I really uh, appreciated the vulnerability and the honesty of which uh, Tara Beth spoke, especially knowing how she's caring for her parents in this season. Yeah, such there was such a, a raw. I mean, I think she really struck that balance that we continually hope for of just being raw and honest and yet hopeful. Um, yeah, just so grateful for her 
willingness to share those things and just her wisdom and seeing God at work in those things too. Yeah. I mean, you talk about that, the finding that balance on the tone. I mean, that's so much in her book as well. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that it is hopeful, but it does, does, it just doesn't, uh, uh, just skate past some of the difficulties either. And yes. uh, continuing to double major in being full of hope and uh, being very real and raw and honest and open. So really grateful for that. What are, what are a few things that, uh, that you take away from our conversation with Tara Beth? Oh man. Well, I, I mean, this is probably going to sound silly in some ways, but just how I think for me, a real big one that I'll get to in a minute, but the first one was how in this season she's loving to cook again. I, I really do feel like there's such a grace in that, in the way that in this restoration process in the hard places of caring for her, 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 her parents, there's also this like refound love of cooking and serving her, her husband and her children in that too. And, and having meals together. I, I think that in some ways that is such a, and I love the phrase that she used quite often, you know, a means of grace. It's such a beautiful means of grace just to share a meal with your family. Um, so that, that, that really stuck out to me and mainly because too, I've been doing a lot of the cooking in my house and just found a lot of love for that and opportunity to love and serve my family as they're kind of running all over the place in sports and coaching and, and all that. So that, that really stuck out. And then I think the second thing was after the recording, um, we just, yeah, my, my daughter was hanging around and, you know, my daughter, Kylie, she's 13 and she has sensed a call to ministry and to, to bring Kylie on and to have her meet Tara Beth and to have Tara Beth pray for her was like, as a dad, it was just this, um, yeah, just a holy moment. I don't know how else to say it. It was, it was just powerful. That was pretty incredible. And we always want to make sure our guests are the same person on the stage as they are off yeah. uh, when the recording record button is pressed and when it's it's off. And I just wish our listeners could have seen and heard that beautiful exchange between yeah. you and your daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was incredible. And I think too, I just, first of all, thank you, JR, for taking a picture, a screenshot of that mm. or however you did that. It was just, it's, that's, that's a gift that I will treasure. Uh, mm. And my daughter will treasure. And we're going to read the book together, which she's really excited Great. about. Oh, like, fantastic. I, just, I think that's so cool. And yeah, she's just like, wow, that lady's really cool, dad. I was like, yes, she is. Son. Yeah. Or, just those know, marky moments, kind of, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, we have authors on and, you know, like publishers care about numbers and they, you know, the book does well, but it's the stories. Yeah. I mean, that's why I write is for the stories, not the numbers. And it's stories like that, you mm-hmm. know, that, that just open up, you write a book, it opens up opportunities for stories like that to happen. I mean, yeah. that was a really beautiful moment. And again, listeners, you're just going to have to trust us. Yeah. It was, it was an unbelievably powerful moment it was. to just see Tara Beth uh, praying blessing over Kylie moisture. Mm. That was just beautiful. So I, I share that with you. I mean, that was my highlight too. And it wasn't <laughs> even my daughter. Uh, it was, it was unbelievable. So, um, yeah. And I, I'm grateful for her and her willingness. I mean, you know, I've always believed that the revival in North America was going to happen inside the church mm. before we see it happen outside the church. And I, I think Tara Beth, uh, understands that impulse and that heartbeat that until we, 
take that very seriously seriously as quote unquote insiders. Mm -hmm. uh, why would the outside world take us very seriously? So that's what I've been praying for. That's what I long for. And, uh, and I, I sense that's in the bloodstream of Tara Beth as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Anything else stick out to you, Doug? Oh my gosh. Yeah. The whole thing just, it's like, there's just so many aha moments. I, I mean, again, I think I just, I, I just had this picture the whole time of just this beautiful saint caring for her parents and just how the Lord is forming something so deep in her in the midst of all of that stuff. That is just a gift to her. And I think, you know, you mentioned it too. It's, it, it's almost this idea and she mentioned it like it's it's restoring the credibility of our witness you know mm -hmm. as followers of jesus and i think that there's something about that that was just so yeah encouraging and, and amazing and she's just a fun person to hang out with too i'm not gonna lie it was really fun to spend time with her yeah and i think the fact that she is caring for her parents it 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 brought more credibility to restoring yeah. the credibility of our witness. You yeah. know, yeah. uh, it's easy to just see pastors from a stage and, and, uh, you know, just to think that the, the sort of platform ministry is the ministry, but, and that is, I mean, that is part of it, of course, but to see her just care and her compassion that is investing in ways that just seem so, um, simple and subtle and yet so important and practical and incarnational. Uh, I think it's just so, mm -hmm. uh, so key on that. So yeah, we want to give our listeners, uh, the listeners, some, some resources here, of course, Tara Beth's book, we highly recommend with university press. Again, the title is radiant church, restoring the credibility of our witness. Uh, and that is available everywhere and anywhere now. And so we want to encourage you to pick that up. The other thing too, is I referenced, uh, in, in a question to Tara Beth about an article uh, from Carl Vader's. Uh, and the name of the article is, Will the Congregation Come Back? Should Not Be Our Biggest Question, Six Better Questions. So we're going to put that in the show notes for you. Uh, we highly recommend that. Those six questions are fantastic. And I, I want to encourage you uh, to actually spend some time with your elders, with your leaders, uh, with other key leaders in your church to wrestle through these six questions and mm -hmm. ask yourself, have we really answered these more than will the congregation come back? So those are the two resources. So Doug, what are some, uh, some questions that we can leave our listeners? Yeah, here's a great one. Who might be on the fringes on the outside that you could listen to? And the second one is this, and it's Tara Best question. Lord, what's the most fruitful or what's the most faithful thing for me to do today? How would you answer that today? And I think that there's something about both of those things that really are just so important for us to realize that this faith that we have, that we are entrusted to carry, needs to be lived out in a regular, ordinary, beautiful way of taking care of our parents, of cooking meals, of doing laundry. So let me just give you all a benediction. Um, and I'm going to kind of put it in two different parts here today because I feel like that's important. So I'm going to start with the brothers. Um, brothers of the Monday Morning Pastor <laughs> family. May you go experiencing God's goodness today. May you also see your calling as one to prop up your sisters in this season, to remind them that they're created in the image of God, to remind them that their voice matters, to remind them that they are 
called to be co-heirs with Christ in this season. Now, sisters, may you walk in, in encouragement today. May you be reminded that God is using you in faithful and fruitful ways. And may that calling that you doubt because of things that may have happened in your past, may you begin to sense courage and boldness in your bones, propping you up and pushing you into the space where God has called you to be. May you go with encouragement and a song of joy. 